Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus podcast. It's Brendan here. And Mark is on the other end of the internets and where the Vet Gurus, vetgurus.com. If you want to look at the show notes or catch up with some previous episodes, which are searchable, so you can search for your favorite topic or topics and it will pull up the episodes that would deal with that particular topic. And we're into the new year, aren't we, Mark? We're well into the new year. We're both back at work, which is fortunate and unfortunate. I'm glad to be back in one respect, Mark, in that... um, it's good to be back on the bike or back on the um, back on the um, back on the dog or the cat or the reptile or whatever. I, d- um, I, d- I didn't think you were allowed to get get on bikes anymore, Brendan. Well, let me tell you a story, Mark. Um, I have this ongoing um, guilt feeling of when I was younger, not that younger actually. Um, I took the family to, and this is a segue that I wasn't planning on as usual. Um, <laughs> We took the girls to um, the family to Singapore, um, which we've been there several times. And um, I went on an elephant ride um, at one of the, the zoo. Well, I think it was Singapore Zoo was the only place you could do it at that time. And we went on the back of an elephant for five or ten minutes. And yeah, I've sort of regretted it ever since because um, the more I more I um, think about these sorts of things, the more I get depressed about the fact that maybe we shouldn't be doing this type of thing. And uh, I I could relate to it very much, Lee, when we went to India last late last year, two thousand and eighteen, and. One of the places that we visited, um, a very famous fort, um, that the one of the things that tourists could do was was have an elephant ride to the top of the fort there. And um, good on him for our guide, our guide that we went with, our local guide, um, strongly discouraged us from doing the elephant ride. He thought it was cruel and um, looking at the way the elephants were treated um, and the the level of work they were doing up and down every day. And it was probably 500 metres, maybe a kilometre that they had to go up vertically, um, up and down um, all morning. And at least they stopped doing um, doing it by about lunchtime every day to try and give the elephants a bit of a rest. They did, did look like they were labouring because we spent a fair bit of time at the fort um, and yet it was a very popular activity to to take the elephant ride up to the top um, because it was a very famous port in the Rajasthan area of, of India where um, it was a bit like Lord of the Rings, Mark, because um, it had been there for hundreds if not thousands of years and, and the entrance to the fort was barricaded such with, with sort of spikes um, that were specifically designed to stop um, the invaders on their elephants from battering down the, the doorways um, to get into the fort. So, you know, it was just like something out of Lord of the Rings, the way these these um was constructed there but um yeah i felt very sorry for those people and it made me think back to um singapore when we went riding the elephants and um 
that's sort of the segue back to yeah, maybe we shouldn't be riding our snakes and our other other species because um, <laughs> I wondered how you were going to tie that all up. Perhaps perhaps it's not the right thing to do, but um, you know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, Mark. It's it's one of those things that I constantly battle philosophically and morally with dealing with with some of these things. How we deal with our animals and how we how we should care for them and look after after them and and respect them. And yet, um, perhaps um, I'm overthinking it. Am I? I don't think so. I think I like the idea that you reflect on these things, Brendan. I think that that's part of the problem that people don't think about these things enough. And I, but I also, you know, I don't want to get all philosophical here. I want to want to, you know, make sure we keep it entertaining for people. But I think that um, it's a, it's we're really as a profession we're really hard on ourselves and we expect perfection all the time. And our professional uh, life's journey or our personal life's journey is um, is littered with attempts to do the right thing, and um, and uh, sometimes they don't actually work out perfectly the way we want. and And I think the intent to be causing least harm to other people and and other living things is a good starting point. But uh, you know, I don't think I'd beat myself up too much about um, about uh, a single ride on an elephant um i think um i've seen uh, uh um you how much you weigh brendan and really i don't think it's going to be too much of an impost on the elephant <laughs> uh thank you very much mike um well it was good but get it was a good getting back to work even though we had a bit of a break over the christmas new year period and i think you did too mark so it was good getting back to to seeing the basics as well as seeing that some of the more complex cases and um one of the first cases i saw was a was a dog with fleas, Mark, a dog with fleas, um, would you believe it? And um, after berating the client and telling him that he's got a flea bag dog and that's why <laughs> he's got um, dermatitis, um, it was it was, it was was good to feel like I was back in the veterinary sphere and doing some work again, Mark, and then um, jumped into a couple of complex exotics cases as well. Have you, you seen anything particularly that caught your interest in the last couple of days since you've been back at work, Mark? Well, it's eerie, Brandon Garmel, because um, we I, I had essentially the same thing. I can't tell you the last time I've had a, um, you know, a good solid flea allergy dermatitis case. Um, the, the Our clients are pretty well uh, trained, led to believe, instructed, um, taught to use um, one of the rather excellent flea control products that are available these days. Um, and um, and we don't see a lot of our dogs have uh, have huge problems with FAD. Um, but I do, it does remind me the fact that I did see this um, beautiful, well-cared-for German Shepherd, and, uh, and I was a little bit prone to um, the same sort of, um, you know, uh, lecturing um, uh, the the owners. But um, I think one of the things that I've learned over the years about flea allergy cases is that many of the people who, um, and this has become more apparent as I've gotten older and I need stronger and stronger strength glasses, many of the people who have those dogs, when they say they can't see any fleas on their dog, they literally can't see any fleas on their dog, no matter what you do. Um, and I think uh, I've learned to be a little bit more tolerant of them, um, explaining that I can see with my rather excellent glasses, but I can understand they might not be able to. Yes, 
Absolutely, Mark. And um, yeah, it was eerie, or it is eerie that we both ended up seeing <laughs> the similar sort of cases. Um, the symmetry there is amazing, as usual. Um, I'm going to jump into the first news story before, because otherwise we're going to run out of um, listeners, because I'll be switching off, Mark, and, and, and switching over to some other probably much more boring podcasts than ours, Mark, and less informative. So I'm going to jump into How Chicken Soup Makes You Feel Better. According to Science is the title of the um, article there, Mark, and um, it particularly piqued my interest, this article, Mark, because, again, it's one of those um, things that I grapple with, Mark. Um, chicken soup, why does it taste so nice and should we be eating chicken soup? Because, um, as you know, I have this um, I have this um, concern that maybe perhaps I shouldn't be eating chicken um, because of the conditions that a lot of these chickens are raised in that we end up consuming, as we, you've um, no doubt become aware with a few of the articles that I've read out previously on podcasts about chickens. But um, I found this quite interesting about um, why we feel better when we have chicken soup, the old remedy of, you know, if you're feeling a bit down, you've got the flu or a cold, um, why do people recommend taking chicken soup and why does it work? And they did they did some studies, Mark, and the studies have shown that a hearty bowl of chicken noodle soup may help clear nasal congestion and ease cold symptoms. And it's all about the ingredients, Mark. Um, the core of any good soup remedy is the fact that it helps keep you hydrated. And that's probably one of the most important reasons why you perhaps are feeling a bit better. And it does help with some symptomatic treatment with it because a clear broth is warm and soothing, says the article, making it a great source of hydration while you're sick. Um, but that's not all. One of the things that makes chicken soup so especially comforting, however, is the fact that it's an excellent source of tryptophan, which, as you know, Mark, helps your body produce serotonin, a mood-enhancing neurotransmitter. So that's why chicken soup is good for you. And, yeah, I think it is. And it reminds me of another little anecdote, <laughs> Mark. I mean, and it you are in, story, you are in storytelling mode at the moment, aren't I, Mark? It, it must be that... That um, little holiday period of, has got me reminiscing and thinking about um, going on a holiday again. And that was, um, gee, I enjoyed my um, my um, chicken dishes when I was in India, Mark. Um, my butter chicken, my butter chicken in India. It was probably my favourite dish when I was in Indi India and um, and this was in northern India and um, the the test um, and I I must admit I ate at way too many restaurants and um, outside places in India and ate way too much and the test of a good restaurant I found in in the in the areas that I went was um, how good their butter chicken was and um, yeah they had some fantastic butter chicken recipes there but the same story there Mark I'd, I'd be eating that butter chicken or when I used to get chicken noodle soup from my mother who fed it to me when I was looking at a little bit seedy was um, should I be eating this chicken or should I be getting the vegetarian equivalent mark um, just just non-chicken soup well, well I think what's the, what's the, what's the clever it's, it's it's what chicken um, it's what tofu tofu noodle soup is how well I should be having that's what I'd have um, but but I think the key thing I'd, I'd um, say to you is that I, I you know I've traveled through some places in Southeast Asia and the chickens that go into their 
soup and meals, um, they're, they're, they have a, you know, pretty good free-ranging lifestyle. They're not, um, they're not the battery chickens that we get uh, produced in factory farms and um, live for 37 days and um, if they live a day longer, they start to get heart disease and, and joint problems. They're different birds altogether, which may have added to their taste and um, the uh, higher protein content and tryptophan levels. Maybe, maybe those meals are yes. actually better. Perhaps I'm feeling a little bit better, Mark. Uh, maybe I should go and have some soup and then I'll feel even better again. So what's your first news story? Well, I want to talk about turtles, Brendan. I want to talk about, um, and I have to shout out to our uh, world-famous research team, the leader of which uh uh, has sent me a number of articles, this one being the first one, and I really appreciate uh, uh, the effort that goes into this research. Um, and this one struck me uh, as a little bit of a, a personal one because um, uh, I've, I've visited uh, Monrepo Beach in um, uh, near Bundaberg in Queensland a number of times, um, and uh, and. Uh, um, probably just when I finished school was the first time I went and was fortunate enough to show up there at a time when there were both uh, turtles laying um, and um, and uh, as well as um, um, turtles hatching. So it was a pretty special visit, that first one. And, um, of course, uh, Monrepo is a world-renowned uh, turtle rookery um, and it's the most important breeding site in the South Pacific for the endangered loggerhead turtle. Um, and it has the largest concentration of nesting marine turtles on the eastern uh, Australian mainland coast. So the problem here is, uh, like so many things, Brendan, is global warming, that the temperature of the sand um, not only determines um, the the uh, hatching of the eggs, um, the fact that they hatch. And so if the temperature is inappropriate, they might not hatch. Um, but also um, the te ideal temperature leads to that perfect balance of males and females. So if the temperature might just be off a little bit too, uh, um, too high, um, then um, that can not only lower the hatch rate, um, heat waves can uh, cause little spikes that lead to death of young turtles within the egg and as well as uh, um, death of the hatchlings as they're trying to burrow out. Um, but uh, 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 in addition, um, the sand's temperature has an effect on the ha uh, hatchlings to make more females likely the hotter the sand gets. So the And of course, a population that has more and more females and fewer males may well have a decent number for a generation, but they're just not going to be able to reproduce to replace themselves, and it will lead to an inevitable furthering of the decline of these wonderful sea animals. So the question becomes, how do you, in the face of monstrous climate, climate change and heat waves, how do you prevent these problems from arising? Well, it's remarkably simple, Brendan. I wouldn't have... I thought they were going to have to come up with you know, harvesting the eggs and putting them in specific temperature-controlled environments where they hatch them out. And But do you know what they do, Brandon? What do they do, Mark? <laughs> they, uh, they have set up a number of sprinklers. 
Um, and they find that um, five sprinklers set along the beach, they create an artificial rain each night, um, which lands over the top of the uh, um, the nests, wetting the sand. Um, and uh, for, I think it's only for, uh, no, they've used a number, one, two, three, four, and five hours of rain each night. Um, and they've come up with a, a, a formula which allows them to, knowing the likely temperature in heat waves, to lower the temperature of the sand and maintain it very close to the 29 degrees, which will get them the ideal hatching success and the ideal hatching sex proportions, Brendan. What an excellent idea. And um, keeping that temperature down, we're, we're avoiding turtle soup, aren't we, Mark? Not chicken noodle <laughs> soup. We're avoiding turtle soup that way, yeah. Now, it's amazing how – keep it simple, stupid, isn't it, Mark? Um, just um, doing simple things to, to keep a, an endangered species alive. So, yeah, great, great article, Mark. And um, thanks to, our, yeah, our, certainly world world expert research team that we have and um, that one person knows who we're talking about and um, thank you very much for supplying that and um, although we have had some amazing articles from our listeners as well haven't we Mark Um, so keep sending the emails in if you find something of interest that you want us to talk about and that's just vetgurus at gmail.com as where to send it Um, my second News story, Mark, is one about anaesthetic deaths, and uh, that was a study that was reported in the Vet Practice magazine that investigated anaesthetic cause deaths in pets, um, which was a team from Spain that um, reported this at the World Congress of Veterinary Anesthesiology. And uh, the results comes from analysing 16,000 cases provided um, in dogs and cats. And um, there's a couple of interesting things here, Mark, and um, I really focused on one key point here, which definitely applies to what we see in unusual and exotic pets as well, Mark. And um, it wasn't just the numbers that they were talking about there, and um, they were um, talking about the death rate um, in cats there was around about 3,000 registered cases and the death rate was 0.47% with only 14 deaths. And in dogs, it was 71 dogs um, had died out of the 12,800-odd cases and the death rate was 0.55%. But um, the important thing there is... um, um, that, that they did mention the um, variable and, and the possibility that a lot of deaths um, occur percentage-wise in the post-operative period mark. And um, I know we, we have spoken about it privately and I think we may have spoken about it um, on air during our podcast as well in that that is a common a common theme with unusual pets as well in that um, the most important point I usually stress to new graduates or those in experience with dealing with unusual pets when they're anaesthetizing them is it's that immediate post-operative period mark which is where you have to be careful especially um, because that's where the the death rate can increase or or has been shown to be um, um, more likely to occur during that immediately um, post-operative period in that first hour or so so I really stress that to new graduates and also to my staff and to to any nurse or technician that I'm that I'm training that they need to just because the anaesthetic's been turned off and the animals um off the oxygen and it's sitting up in that recovery enclosure that is the time where you need to watch it very very carefully, Mark. 
And and we know from experience in both our hospitals that that is precisely the danger period that um, that we are with intensive management with the new uh, multimodal. Um, systems of anaesthesia we apply to our birds and reptiles and um, small mammals and even our dogs and cats. Um, we're much more likely than we were 20 or 30 years ago to get them through the procedure, but um, that risk period extends to several hours afterwards and um, uh, close monitoring um, is um, absolutely critical. There was another point in that article, Brendan, that um, that I thought was um, really worth considering, and that was that... Um, the the only other factor that they could the other factors that they could uh, talk about that had the most significant uh, influence on the rate of death associated with anaesthesia was the animal's physical condition, its age and weight, um, and so those you know um, those. Uh, Galahs, for example, who are morbidly obese and have a lipoma, um, I think it's well, um, there's lots of good uh, information now to suggest that trying to get some weight off them before you do a surgery is likely to result in a better outcome. Um, and the findings of this study are consistent with that, Brendan. Yes, yes. No, it was a, it was a great little summary and I expect the actual original article, which I haven't had time to chase is um, excellent as well. What's your final news story, Mark? Um, my final one is, um, well, it's a little bit out of left field or um, shall we say, um, well, um, it's just a, a particularly relevant because I've been looking in, um, in creeks, I've been looking at um, some of the uh, uh, freshwater crayfish up and around the, where I've been staying over the last few days, um, last few weeks over Christmas, and um, and I have been paying attention to the fish that are swimming in the the uh, river systems in um, the part of northern New South Wales we're staying, um, and this article talks about a way that those fish um, can be uh, categorised, that they can be studied um, without necessarily stressing them and catching them up and um, and uh, um, or diving in the water and looking at them with a um, scuba gear on or whatever other way you're going to collect information. Um, it was um, a system for sticking a microphone in the water and listening to the sounds that are made. And it turns out that many of our, if not most, of our freshwater fish in these ecosystems make a series of noises. So just some of them are, I suppose you wouldn't call them vocalizations, but um, they certainly make characteristic sounds. And in fact, the researchers uh, in this particular case have decided that um, they have enough information from those sounds to be able to monitor fish species, to actually get an idea of the stocks in those uh, river systems, to get an idea of the um, numbers that might be there, the proportions that might be there, and in particular, identify some species that might be there that we don't want to be there that are going to have a, a, uh, a negative impact on those freshwater uh, ecosystems, in particular, of course, the invasive tilapia species. Um, so I just, I'm, I'm constantly fascinated as we look at these um, articles about, um, particularly about animals in the wild, um, the, the way that people come at problems from maybe not the 
the way that you would normally think uh, would be the first line, um, and they apply technologies from, you know, maybe uh, um, laterally thought out prob- uh, problem solving. Um, it, it never it never ceases to fascinate me how they come up with new ways, less invasive ways, more detailed ways that might uh, might provide more information to help us conserve these uh, natural environments. Yes, and. Another another point in that article, Mark, which I, I found of interest was that they've catalogued a lot of the particular fish call sounds and they have an automatic system, I think, where they can identify um, via computer algorithms which, um, which species. So they plug it in pretty similar to what we were talking about in the previous podcast with identification of, of bird and, and frog sounds, etc., um, to, to nail it to the specific species. So, yeah, a, a really interesting study and, um, yeah, it'd be fun putting on those little headphones and listening to some of those sounds. I, I think it'd be quite um, meditative, I reckon, um, listening to some fishy sounds, Mark. What do you think? Well, I'd, I'd be keen to have a listen to them before I commit <laughs> to how meditative they are. But, um, but I suspect you're right. I think that... Unless it's a, unless it's a great white that's, um, that's about to nail you and that's swimming towards you vocalising. Um, so, yeah. so we should jump into our um, main topic this week, Mark, and I think it's a timely one because I don't know about up your way, Mark, but we've had some quite warm temperatures and we had a a very hot day just a few days ago mark where it reached uh, was reported to be 42 degrees celsius as a as a hot point as as the highest temperature but um i checked the record in um here at home and it actually reached 44 degrees celsius which is 112 111 degrees fahrenheit mark so it's a it was a tad warm um, that particular day, and um, it made me think that perhaps a good a good topic um, for this week would be heat, um, <laughs> and in specific um, specifically heating of enclosures for our unusual pets, which we haven't really covered in any detail at all, have we, Mark? Maybe touched on a couple of times. So I thought it'd be a good topic for us to to get stuck into, Mark, and and um, in particular we'll we'll, we'll discuss. All the heating methods and and traps and pitfalls and and um, tips for heating the vivarians for mainly reptiles, but we'll cover the mammals and the birds as well if we have time as well, Mark. So, do you want to kick it off and um, with an introduction to the heating systems that we sort of have in reptiles and and how we go about suggesting what a client should be having for their little pet reptile? I'd love to, Brendan, and and I think it is quite a timely um, topic. I know that I spend an awful lot of time with clients who come in who uh, uh, say to um, the front counter staff or in filling in one of our um, forms, they say that they've got a heater and they are heating their animal to the appropriate temperatures, but on closer uh, in investigation, on closer questioning, they often turn out to have you know, what I think of is some pretty strange ideas about what the appropriate uh, way to heat their reptile um, is. So the first thing to say um, is that there are a number of um, different ways that enclosures can be heated. Um, And so there definitely are um, a number of um, 
inside the enclosure um, heat sources. So um, I would often be referring to things like various hot rocks or uh, mats, um, and they provide a um, you know a hot focal point within the enclosure. Um, extending from the mats, you there are a number of uh, sub vivarium underfloor heating um, systems. Uh, they might be cables tied into the racks that the enclosures are set up in. Um, they might be uh, um, alternate sorts of mats that uh, work underneath the enclosure. Um, and then we have uh, radiant heat sources, which may be, um, you know, just a standard incandescent fitting with a incandescent globe, a, a 40, 60, 80 watt globe. Um, that globe may be um, uh, of different colours. So it may be um, our normal white light or it may be um, red or blue um, or it may even be a ceramic globe that fits into one of those fittings um, that gives out no light at all, Brendan. Yes. So yeah, it's a lot to cover, isn't it, um, with a new client as far as the, the different concepts about what um, heating they need to provide and the different methods that you may provide the heating. And one of the other key points I always try to stress to clients is what you touched on there is the actual whether we're producing a white light or whether we're producing just heat. And um, it is important to really stress to the clients that all animals need a daytime and a nighttime. And if they're providing a heating system in their enclosure that kicks out a white light 24 hours a day, then um, it's not good for our um, little reptile friend or any of our um animals that we're keeping under that sort of system because it's really a form of torture isn't it mark um where they haven't got a chance to experience some 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 night time so that's where those those heating systems like the um um the infrared ones um and the ceramic type ones that are just giving off the heat there and no white light are, are preferable to the um the simple incandescent globes um that traditionally people may may use or, or think that they're a, an easy cheap method to to heat the reptile enclosure um but we try to steer them away from that um because of that day night cycle that um won't be provided if they're supplying with those those lamps the other the other key thing i think you find I'm sure you'll be agreeing, Mark, is that the the better quality specifically made um, lamps that are, are designed to kick out heat and not light um, do last a hell of a lot longer. And some of those simple, normal um, fluorescent globes, for instance, um, or, or incandescent globes will will blow. Um, that they, they won't last very long. They might last hours, let alone days, whereas the, the longer-term ones like the infrared ones or the ceramic heat, heat lamps, I've had some of them actually in my clinic that have lasted um, lasted years, um, Mark. So I think so. So that's the comment I'd, I'd like to make on that. And um, I think I was going to, suppose- while you're talking about those, that I often find people get upset at the relative cost, like they can buy an incandescent globe for you know, a couple of dollars at the most. And we're often looking at, um, you know, 20 to $40, maybe a little bit more for a good quality ceramic globe, but they are still a bargain, Brendan. They, that time that they last and the consistent heat they provide, um, and the fact that it's not influencing the diurnal rhythm and the melatonin secretion and how that influences thyroid and shedding, those things are really important. And so um, I'm like you. We have those uh, ceramic globes in the hospital enclosures and we recommend them strongly to the clients. 
Absolutely. And the other way I try and convince the clients too is is not only the, the output there um, and, and 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 the cost of them um, is not just the physical cost of initially buying it, but the, the, the electrical cost as well. So the incandescent globes are designed to get put out light as well as heat. So they're less efficient. So it will cost you less to heat the enclosure by using a, a specific um, heating element that, that is designed to put out heat or, or give out heat. So, yeah, so the ne- next thing I think, Mark, that I, I generally talk to clients about is is the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer um, because what I find, especially with the reptile enclosures, um, when, when I'm going through the initial setup of the vivarium with a new client is that they'll I'll ask them what is the temperature gradient of the enclosure, what's the hot spot and what's the cool end of the enclosure. And usually they'll just write one thing on their little form that they fill in um, and it, they'll say, oh, the thermostat is set at 27 degrees Celsius or 32 degrees Celsius. And um, they need to understand, Mark, um, that the thermometer that's attached to the heating element will just switch on and off based on where it is and where it, what it is it is set at, and it does not necessarily indicate what the hot spot of the enclosure is for the reptile. So we need to know where that animal can bask, what the temperature is at that basking spot. So they need to get a separate thermometer that they can sit exactly where that little bit of dragon or snake or whatever um, can bask in the hottest areas of the enclosure and measure that temperature and ditto for the coolest end of the enclosure. So they need to do those separate readings of where the animal actually sits, not what the thermostat is set at. Um, And then depending on what the preferred optimal body temperature for the species involved, then you adjust the thermostat um, if things are too hot or too cold for where the um, where the reptile is, Mark. So, and those little thermometers are, are very inexpensive. Um, we actually sell a really cheap one at, at my clinic, which I think is $11, um, and it, it measures humidity as well as um, um, temperature, and they can move around the enclosure, Mark. So that's uh, the next point I, I would um, always, um, talk to clients about, and you're exactly right. The the that whole temperature gradient, temperature mosaic. The client has to be able to be aware of the whole range, and um, and it's one of the things when we talk about those different heating systems, um, the 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 underfloor um, or rocks or mats. Those um, heating systems tend to have very very steep gradients, so the temperature may be a certain level on the surface of the the substrate or the rock just above the heating element, but only a centimetre above that, we're back at background room temperature. And um, that very narrow, that very steep gradient means there's a very narrow area in which the um, the reptile can thermoregulate. Now, that's fine for, um, uh, you know, maybe hatchling animals who uh, can stay in that relatively narrow space um, and uh, and so you'll often find those systems working really well for breeders who have large numbers but once you get to any animal of decent size um, those are my experiences those uh, sub enclosure heating systems or uh, hot rocks within the enclosure are associated with more problems more health issues and we encourage our clients to use those um, radiant sources, uh, a, uh, 
uh, ceramic globe in a suitably enclosed uh, protected um, wire cage so that the reptile can't touch it. Um, they're the things that seem to generate the best health outcomes. Absolutely. I agree totally, Mark. I mean, I'm not, uh, I must admit, I'm not a fan of the underfloor heating or the hot rocks myself as well um, for the, exactly the same reasons. And I, I remember many years ago, I had one of my, probably my, my best reptile client at that, that time who had multiple animals in, in banks of enclosures. He, he had um, several rooms set up for all his, his reptiles, mainly snakes, but not just snakes. And um, he decided he wanted to convert his radiant heat enclosures um, to underfloor heating to save some save some money with his heating bill and I would see him regularly for health checks for his animals and occasional disease process but considering the large collection he um, had relatively minor problems but um, not long after he converted to um, the underfloor heating he had um, he was he was in the clinic every week or so, Mark, with with all sorts of problems, and I think it was di- directly related to that um, um, change in that um, setup there. Um, and I think another another point with the underfloor heating or those um, hot rocks, etc., is that reptiles are very slow to react to that thermal um, gradient from um, from underneath and from um, thermal contact from um, from touching those. Um, touching those um, um, heating elements, Mark, and it's just the way the reptile neurological system um, works and, and physiological system works, whereas if you're providing that more what I call naturalistic setup with, with radiant heat, um, like the sun, um, um, it, it, it's less likely to cause some of those problems, including the burns that um, I'm sure you've seen lots of them over the years and we see a, still an ongoing number of them with those um, with those poorer quality heat rocks especially, and they're the ones that I really don't like at all, the heat rocks, the heat heat strips and the heat mats and those wire sort of um, specific heat heating elements that are designed to put underneath a reptile enclosure I'm, I'm, I'm much, much um, more comfortable with. But the, those traditional sort of mock rocks that look um, look like a rock and they have a basic sort of heating element. Gee, I've lost count of how many of them over the years have malfunctioned. and Should be banned. And, they should be banned, and, Brendan. Cook to reptile, you're starting to get a bit angry there, Mark. Uh, that's 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 my shtick. Um, you shouldn't be doing that. Uh, <laughs> so yes, so that's sort of the heating. So, um, you know, well, we've only just started, haven't we, with a couple of things. So the different types of heating elements, and and one of the other important things you touched on there at the start, there, Mark, is those radiant heat elements. It, it is so important to make sure that they they are covered. They have some sort of cage or or enclosure around it um, that separates that heating element from the reptile um, or from the small mammal or the bird if you have have some sort of heating system in in the enclosure for those species as well because I don't know why it happens Mark I over the years I haven't had many but I've had had snakes for instance that um, have been in the same enclosure the same setup the owner hasn't moved house at all and this snake has been in the same setup for 20 years and then on year 21 one day it decides to coil itself around the heating element and and end up with a third degree burn and yet it was in the same enclosure for the last 20 years and didn't um, have any interest in doing that so um, um, I don't know why those particular animals decided one day to to, to burn themselves because the setup was exactly the same but it is a 
essential that they have a, a little a little separation um, from the um, heated element so we can try and avoid that um, that um, that overheating and those burns that occur there mark so the other thing I, I would ask you Brendan is um, when you know we've we've had a quick talk about the people and the the way they think about the thermostats which i entirely agree with you they're um frustrating they shouldn't be sold with numbers on them um that's what i reckon because the numbers often represent nothing close to what's right for the animal and without measuring those temperatures with a separate thermometer you just have no idea but um i think that um it's a um a useful thing for people to set to aim to have the hot spot higher than they'll often read online that their diamond python has a preferred uh, body temperature of um of you know 29 29 and a half degrees um they set their um hot spot at that um and that means that it's very difficult for an animal to maintain their body temperature at that because um they can never get to a spot that's above that and that if the hot spots at that temperature, the large part of the rest of the enclosure will be colder, and so they are spending an awful lot of money to heat the enclosure, but not heating it just that little bit more to a level where um, the animal's going to be able to behave normally. Um, so I think while there's vast amounts of information on the internet of preferred body temperatures, I don't think that's the number that clients should use to... Uh, to set their hotspot to Brendan. Absolutely. So it's 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 the key of, of keeping it simple to the clients and saying, look, here's here's a little list of the preferred body temperatures of, of some common species, which is what we provide our clients with. And um, here's your species that I highlight in a in a highlighter pen. Which, which, which colour? Um, well, it depends. Have we got a male or a female <laughs> animal? And have we got a lizard or a snake or a crocodile market? I've got a whole range of, of colour pens. And this is when it when it gets to my, one of my nurses who is a little bit OCD. She loves this sort of thing if I do something like that. And um, she'll get angry with me if I highlight it purple when it should have been green. Um, so, yeah, which makes it problematic, doesn't it, if you've got a colourblind client? <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps you should check that first before you start highlighting um, in different colours, yes. Um, so, yeah, I think the key there is the thermoregulation. The animal needs to be able to select the temperature it wants to. So we make sure that we have a hotspot a little bit higher than the preferred optimal body temperature for the species in question. And we have a nice cool area that's perhaps a little bit cooler than what uh, people would think would be the ideal cool spot. So that reptile can move in and out of that enclosure depending on whether it decides it's a little bit cool or, uh, or it's just had something to eat and it needs a little bit more warmth to help digest its food um, and vice versa, Mark. Um, and the other thing that we've mentioned in other podcast parts, which we'll only just touch on very briefly here because we have a whole lot of other hot things to talk about, um, is um, the importance of the animal with the reptile being warm in order to absorb UV light correctly. So when we're positioning UV lighting and we have a whole podcast on uv lighting in reptiles um you need to make sure that that uv light is in an area where the animal can also bask as well um, because if we just have a uv light up one end of the enclosure and our heating element up the other end of the enclosure things are not going to go very well for that particular animal 
So what about how how, how do we heat the whole enclosure, Mark? Um, do we just have that hotspot 24-7? What's the ideal? Um, I think that uh, the first thing to talk about is um, that you do need to heat it uh, generally for most species 24 hours, um, but you don't necessarily need to keep it at a high temperature. And depending on the background temperature of where you are and the structure of the enclosure. So, for example, um, an, an all-glass enclosure is going to be a very poor thermal environment and is going to need to be heated you know, pretty much all the time because uh, the glass will radiate the heat very, very quickly and um, a background temperature will be reached in short order. And if that's cold, um, then the animals inside are going to be cold. Um, but in a you know a, a um, fiberglass or um, a thick wooden enclosure, um, the temperature is going to radiate much less uh, quickly, uh, much more slowly, and um, the heat is going to radiate. And so, as a consequence, um, you can, in some circumstances, turn that heat off overnight. But a di- diurnal cycle is very important, and um, and uh, and so making sure that uh, they still have a suitable temperature at night, but that it's not too cold is really important. So having a um, yeah, a bit of a diurnal variation, I suppose, is what you say there, Mark, would be ideal um, for a lot of these species. And, and the good news with that is you can purchase quite easily, readily, and, and reasonably economically um, thermostats that will provide a day and a night cycle um, for your heating element. So they, um, you just set um, when you want the nighttime heat to kick in and when you want the daytime heat to start again the next morning. So um, whereas in the past it was quite difficult in order to set up a system where you'd, um, it could automatically turn down the temperature a little bit over the over the nighttime period um, to help, to help um, provide that sort of diurnal um, very there, Mark. Um, what about when? Um, what do you do? What do you recommend as far as heating goes, Mark, um, for these reptile enclosures during the winter period? Do we? Do you turn it all off and let the reptile brumate? No, and yes, <laughs> <laughs> we tend to not turn the um, the the uh, heat off in the winter completely, but we do want the animals to brumate um, and. Uh, as you just highlighted, there are a number of um, electronic thermostats now that are relatively easy to program, um, and seasonal change to those is a sensible thing to do. Um, and once again, it it's a little bit complicated by the nature of the enclosure. So um, in some enclosures, you'll have a hotspot. Let's say we've got a bearded dragon, and there's a hotspot that's at... Um, 37, 38 degrees, and in the summer, the background temperature at the opposite wall at the coolest part of the enclosure might be, well, if it's anything like the last week, it's we won't even need to turn it on, Brendan, but in normal summer yes. conditions, um, you might get down to high 20s in the background, but in the winter, that background temperature might drop down to low teens or even less. Um, and so you've got to, I can't emphasise enough that being aware of the gradient, the reptile will be aware of the gradient. Many of my bearded dragon clients ask me how, I keep the temperature the same all year round, how do they know when it's winter and how to brew mate when in 
fact, they don't. The temperature in the hotspot may be the same all year round, but the enclosure has a completely different gradient and the reptile senses that and knows when winter is as a consequence. Yes, absolutely. I didn't answer your question there at all, did I? You never do, no. <laughs> You never do, but you tell a good story. <laughs> no, very good, very good. So, yeah, there's a, I mean, there's, especially when we're chatting to clients for the first time, you know, there's a lot of things to cover and it, it's that's where handouts are good, Mark. We send, we send them home with lots of handouts and pretty pictures and diagrams and um, highlighted, highlighted. Um, things as In well. In the appropriate colour. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, so, because we, we, yeah, the the other thing I, I think is important. Um, these people, clients who have the, they're just relying on the thermostat and the temperature recorded on the thermostat. There is some. Um, I don't think a lot of them are super accurate there. And on those hot days, like you were talking about, it's amazing how many. Over the years, again, I've seen um, reptiles that have been cooked in their enclosures and yet the client was surprised that their reptile got cooked because it was a 40-degree day. Their rented accommodation didn't have any cooling um, and they still have the reptile enclosure turned on. It's going full blast and they couldn't quite realise um, that the fact with the temperature and the humidity changes, um, even though the thermostat was still only set at um, 27 or so, that their little their little reptile end up getting cooked there. So uh, I think it's so important to make sure that they do separate readings with separate thermometers and, and and continue to monitor that not just do it once off when they set up the enclosure initially but um to regularly do that um so they need a regular program um similar to what we recommend with say changing uv lights regularly they need to regularly um weigh their animals they need to regularly check the temperatures um, gradients of their enclosures and, and 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 it's a good point brendan because you know i you know i keep a number of reptile species i have done over the years and and i would say that i don't know 10 years ago Maybe once every year I would have to um, switch all the um, uh, heating off because the summer temperatures were um, were so uh, excessively high that um, it was dangerous. And I would put, um, you know, uh, ice bricks, um, uh, Coca-Cola bottles with filled with water that have been frozen into the enclosures to invert the the uh, temperature gradient to provide a uh, heat sink and so the reptiles could still find a spot in that enclosure where their temperature was uh, was satisfactory and they weren't exposed to excessively high temperatures which they don't cope with very well at all no and um and but that that seems to be like you know not that i want to be the portent of horrible things to come in the future but um there would have been Already this year, a dozen days where I've had to do that to the animals that I have. And so I think um, being prepared to cool them down um, is uh, becoming um, equally important as maintaining the the uh, appropriate temperature for the rest of the year. Yep, definitely. Um, what about birds, Mark? What do you re- Are there any um, birds kept commonly that you'd recommend hating? And why? And what's what sort of setup would you recommend? Well, that's a great question. Um, the wonderful thing about birds, and the, amongst the many wonderful things about birds, there is <laughs> there are feathers, and feathers are just an absolutely awesome uh, 
structure to provide insulation. Yes, exactly. And a healthy bird, because of their high rate of metabolism, they produce a, a, a significant amount of heat and the outstanding insulation provided by the air trapped by the layer of feathers means that most birds are excellent at maintaining their body temperature, except in two circumstances, Brendan, two big circumstances. Um, and these are both pertinent to um, our bird keeping clients. The first one is when the birds are sick, the birds, um, are, this is the way I explain it to my clients, birds are just very advanced reptiles with feathers. And when they're sick, they revert to their superior but more primitive form and they don't thermoregulate very well. And you can tell that by the way they try to fluff out their feathers and trap a greater layer of air um, to maintain um, an insulating blanket that keeps them warm. But that uh, obviously, as the feathers get out to a certain point, it doesn't work anymore. The air is not trapped between them and flows freely and uh, allows them to cool precipitously and make them more sick. So the first type of bird that we need to uh, thermally support and treat almost as a reptile are sick birds. The second sort um, are birds that have feather problems. So maybe I've got uh, a lovely client who has a 21-year-old cockatiel, um, and amongst the relatively many relatively minor problems that that bird is dealing with in its senile years um, is that um, is that its feathers are not maintained because it's a bit arthritic. It can't reach all its feathers, and so they're not maintained in the pristine fashion that they were when the bird was young. So um, it uh, doesn't maintain an excellent blanket of insulating feathers and it does need some thermal support. So those are the two groups of birds and uh, beacon feather disease birds. Um, they're another example of cockatoos that are suffering beacon feather disease that have dystrophic feathers. Um, they're another group of birds that just uh, really require um, to be treated like reptiles, to have a light source that they, uh, that they can't access that has a protective cover over it. Um, and you definitely see these birds um, move towards those heat sources um, uh, and take advantage of the, the, uh, the thermal gradient to keep their body warm. Yes. Well said, Mark. And I think the same could be said to a certain extent with some of our little small mammals too. The unwell or critically ill small mammals, um, they'll need supplement heat, that's for sure. And that's where... I think we should have a separate podcast about um, critical care of some of these unusual pets and their little enclosures, um, everything from humidity cribs to to specific um, little intensive care units that have been um, manufactured for these species, which includes the um, heat control um, for these animals and then we're keeping them at a, a more specific temperature while we're um, trying to treat them, that hypothermia with them as well, Mark, um, there. So, yeah, so um, have we spoken about burns due to these um, heat heat um, heat elements? We haven't, Mark, and we might have touched on it a little bit in previous, previous podcasts, but, um, you know, that's the downside of when these things go wrong. Um, we can end up with some pretty nasty, nasty burns, and I sort of hinted 
about the fact that with reptiles that they're pretty slow with reacting to to thermal burns um, by the time that the message gets to their little reptile brain mark um, it's um it's a, it's a bit longer than it would be than if it was a was a mammal or an, and perhaps a bird and um, they can end up with some pretty horrific um, injuries there so they can be quite quite a challenge to treat because we can end up with some fairly extensive um, burns with them but Perhaps we leave that to another podcast and we'll cover the treatment of burns as an actual topic next time. Um, is there anything else you want to sort of summarise or, or, or chat about that we haven't touched on, Mark, as far as heating enclosures, um, especially the reptiles we've mainly stuck to for this particular episode, but anything else we've missed that you can think the of? The only other thing I was going to mention on this topic, Brendan, was our intensive care cages. We we were, we we did propose that we might talk about them in more detail, but I like the idea that they, in most of our other enclosures, they have a we aim for a gradient, but in those intensive care cages, we're often aiming to have the whole enclosure at a specific temperature because a lot of those really sick, critically ill birds and reptiles, um, they won't thermoregulate properly and uh, and they won't move to and from a heat source to maintain thermal equilibrium. Um, and so we sort of almost force it on them, pick a temperature, put them into one of the enclosures that uh, has a heat source that um, is uh, fan-forced throughout the enclosure and we make sure they have the... the uh, the temperature that um, is going to keep them healthiest. Yes, and a key factor then in monitoring those patients is measuring that core body temperature of that that critically ill animal, animal very regularly um, and then um, adjusting that temperature based on what's happening so we don't we don't end up cooking that animal um, As, unless it's um, unless it's um, chicken soup, Mark. Um, chicken noodle soup, and I think on that point, <laughs> that um, could be the end of this episode, Mark. Enough corny jokes from me, and we'll talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.